All right. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 22 says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're, great, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for um, the challenge it is to our hearts and the opportunity it is to proclaim its truths. God, we admit and I admit we're insufficient for this task. Our words, our emotions, our spirit is not ready to give you what you deserve. We cannot do it in our strength, and so we will not. God, we ask that um, you would indeed challenge our hearts with the words of this text. That you would speak to us and encourage us from your word. It would help us to trust you more this day. To believe you more this day. We thank you for this time you've given us, and we pray that your spirit would speak. God, I just, I yield my words to you. I ask for your provision, God. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> First Peter 3.13 says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Um, Going to be... Real transparent here. Feel horrible this morning. <laughs> Heart is not in the right spot. It's not. Uh, and I, I can't really pin it on much other than that we had a flood this morning. <laughs> and, and that's not even a big deal to me. Like, <laughs> I can't really, I can't even really pin it on that. Because I think it's more than that. Um, you know, the Lord is faithful to provide. And I think what he wants to remind me this morning, and, and hopefully you too, is that it actually doesn't depend on me being ready. It, it actually doesn't depend on my heart being ready. That God would want to speak to us and challenge us right where we're at. And uh, my heart's not ready. My notes aren't ready. I'm not ready for what we're about to talk about in this text. I, I know some of what I want to say, but in terms of organization, I'm not there. So I'm just going to be real upfront with you. I don't have any clever illustration this morning. Okay, I just got a roof that's leaking and flood coming in my back door, and that's my life. <laughs> and uh, and so anyway, that's that's where I'm at. Um, thank you, thank you. But the word says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And so the question that was ringing in my head uh, with this, this question that Peter is writing is, what is good in this context? What has he been talking about that is good? Because he's saying, if you're zealous for what is good, then who can harm you? Is it just being moral, doing the right thing, not doing bad stuff and doing good stuff? 
I think if we continue on from the argument of the last few weeks in this text, which I think has been this, that as a Christian, in your calling, where God has you, wherever that is, whether you're under the, uh, the authority of Nero and the Roman government, whether you're under the authority of a boss who's taking advantage of every minute and hour of your time, whether you're in a marriage where your spouse does not believe in Christ and yet you do, wherever you are found as a Christian, your calling to do good is to testify to the hope that is within you in the midst of your circumstances. And if we do that, if we continue to press into who God is and our hope that is within from Christ and Christ alone, then who can harm us? And the answer is emphatic from Scripture. This is a rhetorical no. There's no one that can harm you when you are zealous for what is good. When you stand where God has called you to stand and say what God has called you to say, there's no one that can touch you. And so it's better to be disciplined for righteousness' sake than for the sake of your sin, than for sake of, of doing wrong because you were done wrong to. My heart's not right, and I'll, I'll just say it this way. Um, I know my heart's not right, because when I came in this morning and saw again for the, I can't count, <laughs> I, can't, I can't count the number of times the gutter has failed and water has come in my back door. I can't, I can't count anymore. I came in and I slammed the door as hard as I could. And I threw my keys against the wall. I was ticked. It's ticked off. And so my heart wasn't right. My wife's is right because she's awesome. <laughs> Uh, amen. amen. Yep. She didn't hear you, but, but she's awesome. Because when we come to gather for prayer this morning before worship, she said, thank God for the flood. I'm like, how are you thanking God for the flood again? <laughs> I'm done with it. I'm done with the water. I'm done with it. Oh, my gosh. And so it just makes me in this place where I'm like, God, when are you moving us? Are we ever leaving this spot? Are you taking us to a new place? It gets me real frustrated about a lot of things. But that's my spirit being in the wrong place. That's just true. And so I, I got to listen to this word, and I'm going to try and listen to this word with you guys. I'm not preaching to you, okay? Maybe I am, but I'm definitely preaching to myself, so... Um, so the word says, if your hope, if, if uh, there's no one who can harm you, if you're zealous for what is good. And he goes on in 14 to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed when you suffer for righteousness sake. Not, not when you suffer for like, again, doing good. When you suffer for doing what God has told you to do, okay? When you suffer for being, walking in step with what God has called you to walk in. If you suffer for the sake of doing what God has called you to do in the midst of difficult circumstance, then you will be blessed. And so, yeah, there's lots of things to be fearful of and to be troubled by around us. And no matter what building we're in, there will be things to be troubled by and fearful of. And you guys know that too in your own circumstance. You might be struggling with something. You're going, if we could just have this situation, if we could just have this much more money, if we could just have this job, if we could just live in this city, if we could just, if we could just, if we could just. But the problem is that our troubles just come with us. Okay? And so there's going to be troubles wherever we are. And the Bible says have no fear of those who would persecute you. Have no fear of the troubles that may come against you. Your suffering for what God has called you into is a blessing. 
Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 10 and following. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter challenges a, a small church in the midst of uh, persecution from their culture, in the midst of mixed relationships where you're dealing with Christians and non-Christians, not a Christian culture around them. He's telling them, blessed are you if you're persecuted for what you believe about Jesus. Verse 15, he goes on to say this, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do not be afraid or troubled of the things that are around you. Have no fear of the things that are around you. Rather, Place your fear where it rightly is before the Lord who is holy. We think that this passage uh, that Peter is kind of walking through here, he's referring to uh, Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13, which says this, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Right? We look around at our circumstance, we look around at our things that we're worried about, we look around at systemic things that we're worried about, and we say, someone's out to get me, or someone's out to get us, or whatever it is, and we call it conspiracy, right? We just say, oh, someone's out for me. Whether there's truth to it or not, the Bible says, don't fear that. Don't be in dread of these external things that are around you in your circumstance. Do not be afraid of those things. They may be real threats, but God is saying to your heart and to my heart, do not fear them. Do not be afraid of them. In verse 13, he goes on to say, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Who should I fear in the midst of persecution? Not the world. Who should I fear when my circumstances don't feel good and I'm coming up against a rough, rough challenge? Not my circumstances. I should be afraid of the Lord who is most holy. And so I repent. I'm sorry I came in this morning and slammed the door and ripped off the weather seal that came off and got mad at the ceiling that was dripping and threw my keys against the wall. I, genuinely, that's the wrong response for me. I need to honor the Lord. I need to be reverent before God. He's in this place. We say it flippantly maybe, but truthfully, we welcome the Lord in this place. This is His place. As much as I'm a broken piece of junk vessel, so too the building, right? But no less a place for God's presence. And so I repent. I wasn't fearful of the Lord in that. I wasn't. I was angry and upset about, like, not even that much water. I'm so used to it, I didn't bother mopping it. Right? Justin can probably, I could have mopped this up. I was like, no, don't worry about it. I know the solution. Shop back comes. We back it up. It's done. Air conditioner dries out the rest. It's fine. And we move on. Right? I literally, it's like riding a bike. It's like not even, not even a problem. I've seen much worse floods. But my heart just wasn't right this morning in that. And so, I'm sorry. Um, it wrecked my morning. It wrecked the preparation that I normally do in a morning. It may be in a vulnerable place right now. 
And so I'm sorry to you guys, because my heart should have been right this morning, and it wasn't. Um, I felt it in my singing. Couldn't sing the way I normally sing. Sorry. But you guys sing great. It turns out you guys are really good singers. So thank you. Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. If we're honoring Jesus as Lord fully in our hearts, the result will be that we will express a constant readiness to defend the hope that is in us. It's not going to look perfect, obviously, this morning, as you can tell. But it is there. My hope is not in anything I can do. My hope is not in my ability and not in my emotion, not in my spirit. I know I'm broken, and I've seen that clearly this morning, you know. Um, but I'm just as broken other days as I am today, is the truth of it. And as much as we tell ourselves and remind ourselves, you know, a lot of Sundays, this is my rhythm. You know, I get up early in the morning, get here, work through sermon prep, and I'm ready to go at time to, time to welcome people in, you know. And... Um, And because of how I operated this morning, I wasn't ready. But the cool thing about our faith in Jesus is that he loves me still. He knew this day was coming and knew us how to use it even now in this moment. And so I thank you for your grace toward me. um, And I thank the Lord for his grace toward me. Because in the midst of my sin, I realize I'm a sinner even more. Just as much today as I was yesterday. Just as much today as I will be tomorrow. And my hope has never been and never will be and never was in something I can do. The hope that is within us, that we defend, that we can defend at any point, not with wise words, but with truth of circumstance in our life. We know if you have come to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you know that once you were lost, and now you are found. That once you had no hope, and now you have an eternal hope. That once you were a sinner, and Christ who is holy died for you, even though you were his enemy. This is the hope of the gospel, that however messed up and jacked up we are, Jesus says, I already went to the cross on your behalf before you did it. Before you jacked yourself up, before you messed up, I was already there. We're called to be able to give a defense of this hope, and, and as mysterious and powerful as the truths we know are, none of it is hidden. We're a blank slate. Our, our emotions are on our shoulder. We're not trying to present anything to anybody that is fake. We're trying to not be fake. We're trying to be completely real and true with one another, and the Bible is completely true and real with us. The commentator mentioned this, that um, he remarked that in respect to our faith, it's an interesting difference between Christian faith and mystery religion because there's many mystery religions around where more knowledge means you paying somebody, where more knowledge means you jumping through hoops here and there or doing the right motions or saying the right words. Not so with Christianity. Not so at all. It's all laid out in Scripture. It's all written across the pages from Genesis to Revelation. You're messed up, jacked up, can't do anything on your own, and Christ did it on your behalf, and that's it. And that will we will wrestle with the truth of that for eternity and for the rest of our lives. We will not know the depth and the width and the breadth of how beautiful and mysterious that is, but its truth is laid bare before us. I once was a sinner, and now I'm saved because of Jesus. 
Peter, you know, is talking to a group of believers who hasn't been a group of believers for more than, what, a hundred years? Right? Like, they just received this truth that Jesus, who many of them did not, have not even seen, they believe in. And so when he tells them that you should be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is within you, you know, my mind always goes to apologetics and like these great arguments uh, from, from leaders of the faith. And at this point, I used to say Robbie Zacharias. <laughs> so I used to say, and I struggle to say that now. And, but now I say Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, like there's other, whatever, great apologists. And so when I read this verse, usually I think about those and think, well, man, I can't measure up to the defense that someone more intellectual than me can provide. I just, like, there, there are people out there that are way more philosophically minded, theologically minded, that can come before you and present all the arguments for the existence of God and the arguments for why this uh, end times view is correct and why, why sanctification is the way it is and all, all this kind of thing, okay? I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm not that guy. And so, i got to remember that Peter is talking to a group of people that didn't have any of that. Okay? They hadn't had thousands of years of church doctrine. They didn't have any of that. They had just come to a very simple truth. That a man named Jesus died on their behalf. And that as soon as they believed in him, that, that his death was a substitute for what they deserved, which is death, that they received it. And in receiving that, they, they received an eternal hope. And so, when you're walking through this world as a Christian, and someone asks you, why are you a Christian? You don't have to be worried about giving some uh, amazing defense in terms of, like, arguing intellectually with somebody. You just have to testify to what Jesus has done in you. You just have to say... Well, all i got to tell you is that once I was a sinner and I was afraid of conspiracies of the world, I was afraid of what my sin had done to other people. I was afraid that I was going to hurt someone or hurt myself. I was afraid of what people were doing to me. At once, I was a sinner and broken, and my hope was in this life, in this world. And now, because of Jesus, I know I was a sinner and that I've been redeemed by his blood. And I stand in him and him alone. He says to do this with gentleness and respect. Um, in verse 16, he says, Having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. As we defend what we believe, it's very easy in our historically Christian culture to say, no, the right way is to think the way I think and get really defensive about it and really forceful about it and really disrespectful about it and really harsh about it and put people down because they don't believe the way that we believe. And it does nothing but turn people away. Peter's calling to those who are already vulnerable in a place where they're persecuted for their faith is to not come harshly at people who are persecuting, to not come disrespectfully to those who they're vulnerable unto, but rather to continue to, test, to, continue to testify with gentleness and respect. As you defend Jesus, do so with a good conscience, remembering that the people you are talking to about your faith or maybe asking you questions or you're, you're challenging you on your faith, they are also made in the image of God. And so reminded, right, like rem remind yourself of the truth of Ephesians 6, that we're not fighting some 
battle of flesh and blood. We're fighting a battle in the heavenly places. And so as you look at those that come at you and persecute you, you don't have to get defensive and get uh, angry with them, but rather with the truth that they're struggling with, right? Tackle the things that they're tackling in their, in their hearts. Be mad at that. Don't be mad at the person that is in front of you, but rather with gentleness and respect, prayerfully and wisely speak and testify to the hope that is within you. Peter says, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than doing evil. Why would he say this? And he's just over and over and over again in the past couple weeks pointed this back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus. Why can Peter be so bold in telling us that, hey, you know, you should, if you should suffer for doing good, that's okay. How can he be so bold in that? Because the author and perfecter of our faith suffered for what he did. This is why Peter can say that to them. He said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, that, but made alive in the Spirit. Why do we embrace the fact that someone might not agree with me? Someone might be upset with my belief system? Because Jesus embraced that fully unto the cross. That he took it and bore it to the cross on our behalf. He suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. I'm so grateful for the gospel that even for a sinner like me, Christ would die. That he would go and bear the cross for my unrighteousness. That he would substitute. That, that he would take his righteousness and put it on me and take my unrighteousness and bear it to the cross. That's the substitute. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, it's a big word, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus taking on what I deserve in the cross. Subbing in for me on the cross. I was, I am, unrighteous. And God has bore my sin at Calvary. Uh, the remainder of this is really fun. Verses 19 to 20 uh, Luther says this of verse 19 to 20. I might be skipped down a little bit there, Jason. He says this of verse 19. This is a wonderful text. A more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. It's Martin Luther. <laughs> so, that's fun. In verses 19 and 20, um, you know, Jesus is put to death in the flesh, but been made alive in the Spirit, he goes on to say, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, with God's patience, when, God patient, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So I'm going to unpack it for you really quickly. I don't want to focus on this too much, but I do want to point it out. Um, in verse 19, it says that after Jesus died in the flesh and was made alive in the Spirit. In the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits that were in prison. What are we talking about? There's a few views, and I just want to put them before you so you just kind of know that there are a few views out there. And, and in the spirit of Martin Luther, we don't know what we're doing. We'll find out in heaven more clearly. But I want to put them before you so that you don't find some other view that's very odd. Okay. So the first view is this, and it's Augustine's view, that the spirits in prison refers to the humans that were living at the time of the flood. That Jesus, in the spirit, went back in time, because he's outside of time. So he went back in time, in our world, and that Jesus was actually the one who was preaching through the ministry of Noah when he was preaching. This is Augustine's view, that what Peter is referring to is Jesus being present, being manifest through the preaching of Noah before the flood. That's one view. 
that Jesus went back and preached to the, to the spirits of prison. So I, that obviously, like, it's like Back to the Future. Okay, we watch Back to the Future this weekend. It's, it's literally like Back to the Future. Okay, like Jesus jumped into DeLorean. Okay, went back to whatever it was somewhere between fifty thousand BC and five thousand BC. Anyway, the whole whole big debate there. Um, and and he was the one preaching through Noah, a righteousness through the saving of God, the saving by God. The second is this, that the spirits in prison are the humans who died in the flood, and that explicitly, but also implicitly, any humans pre- and post-flood who never truly heard the gospel preached to them. That Jesus is going back across all time and preaching to those who have not heard the gospel. Clearly. That'd be cool, right? Um, the only challenge with that that I would challenge our hearts in is that, first of all, there's a lot. Romans 10 says, consequently, those who have not heard the word of God, so you've got to go and preach the gospel, okay? You can very easily take a theological belief and remove a missional calling from your life because you're like, well, Jesus is going to take care of it, so I'll let him do it at the end times. No. <laughs> okay. If Jesus sees fit in this view to go to a person who has died, right, and preach for them one more time, here's the gospel, one last chance. Okay, let's not give them one last chance. Let's give them lots of chances beforehand of proclaiming the gospel message that they would turn to know Jesus as their Savior. So it can be easy in some way to hang, the, hang your hat on, well, God's going to give everybody a chance one last time, so live the way you want, and then one last chance at the end. Guess what? If you set a course in your life, to live one way, thinking that you're going to get a chance at the end, the result is when the chance comes at the end, you're not going to choose that. The trajectory of your life will make you, even in that moment, choose to reject Jesus. If you spend 70 years rejecting Jesus, and he gives you one last chance, you're probably going to reject him again. And so don't take the viewpoint of, oh, well, since this is the case, I should just uh, not care. No. You're not caring is just going to tear down your soul so much so that even if Christ shows up to you posthumously after your death and proclaims the gospel to you one more time, one last chance, you'll still say no. Whew. Okay, that's the second view. Third view is that he's not talking about humans. He's talking about angels. Okay, and that, that Jesus went back and actually instead of proclaiming the gospel to humans, was proclaiming victory over the angels who had, uh, had had relations with humans. And this is from Genesis 6, 1 to 4. There's the sons of God had relations with man, with humans. Okay? And so this view says that Jesus, after conquering death on the cross... When back in the spirit to these sons of God who saw fit in their angelic behavior to come intermingle with humanity and somehow influence humanity with their power instead of God's power, that Jesus, after defeating death in the grave, went back to these said angels and said, you have no power anymore. You might have intermingled with us, but at the cross, I've defeated death and all authorities are subject to me. This refers us to the end of the passage, verse 22, where he says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The context being that Jesus' death on the cross, he can go back to these spirits that once enslaved us as people and say, by the authority of my death on the cross, you have no strength anymore. You have no binding on my people any longer. So in the first two senses, the gospel is proclaimed to people who either heard it once or hadn't heard it yet completely. The third is that the proclamation that Jesus is doing to spirits in prison is to declare victory over the fallen angels and the power of the sin which they had oppressed humankind with and oppressed humankind with. I kind of like the third one, if I'm honest. Uh, 
you know, I think, it, first of all, it speaks to the passage itself, verse 22, where Jesus has authority over all powers. They've been subjected to him. And it speaks to me right now, uh, specifically, okay, because sin has no hold on me anymore. I, I walk away forgiven. I walk away in the grace of Christ Jesus. And so, whatever it means, we'll, we'll hang out with Luther and say, we don't know exactly, we'll ask him when we get to heaven exactly what happened, or what that means. But what we do know is that Jesus had work to do after he died, and he did it. Okay? He preached to, prison, his, to spirits that were in prison, uh, which is powerful, and did so, um, let's go back to that. did so because these spirits were disobedient during the time of Noah as the ark was being prepared and, and the Lord was saving his humanity, bringing them safely through the waters. So then, uh, also complicated, verse 21, Peter turns to them and says, this saving through the waters... Noah, being saved through the waters in, in, in the ark, corresponds to baptism. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to God saving his people through an ark in a flood that destroyed the rest of humanity. Baptism corresponds to this. And now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It can be very easy, and people do this all the time, which is amazing, where they go, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, period, and then just stop reading the rest of the verse and say, see, if I just baptize you, then you're saved. And that's not what's being said, okay? He says it corresponds to this, okay? The baptism, which corresponds to Noah's family being saved in an ark through the floodwaters, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. The operative word being that in baptism, what we're doing is we're appealing to God. Our faith in God who saves is the thing that saves us, not the waters themselves. The waters are a means of declaring, this is what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in the fact that though I deserve judgment of water, I am raised to new life in Christ. It's a picture. It's an identification. Okay? Just like all of humanity was destroyed in the flood, save Noah and his family, so too, when I go down in the waters of baptism, the description is that these waters are a symbol of judgment. If you are submerged underwater, you die. You drown if you're held down, right? That's what happens. Waters kill. Water is a judgment symbol. And what we're saying in baptism is that instead of the waters holding me down, I am raised to new life with Christ. And so baptism is, is, is an appeal to God to say, I am taking on the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm crucifying, I'm dying to the sins of the flesh. And now I'm being raised to new life in Christ. Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, so what do we walk away from in this? First thing is this. Um, always be ready to defend your hope in Christ Jesus. Always be ready to defend your hope in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how do, I, how do I make sure that I'm always ready to defend the hope that I have in Christ Jesus? It is helpful, for sure, you know, to, to read apologetics books and to read theological books and read about doctrine. It's, it's helpful to do that. It's helpful to know your scripture, to know the Bible and know it well, know why things are where they are, and, and know some you know, verses that really stand out to you about the gospel. Um, those are helpful things. Um, but the most helpful thing is actually this. 
to honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. You are always ready to give a defense of the gospel if you honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. The thing is that that God has made each one of us in a specific and amazing way. He's made us and, and put us right where we are. Okay, remember the last three weeks, right? Remember that you're a citizen of a country. Remember that you are a worker of a job. Remember that you might be a spouse of another spouse. He has placed you in these positions. Okay, and each of your positions in life, each of your stations in life, is as unique as possible. It's a fingerprint in this world, okay? There's no one like it. And he's put you where he's put you with purpose. Okay, so yeah, you you might be really good at defending the faith theologically, and that's awesome. But more importantly, you need to honor Christ as holy in your heart. We talked about this a little bit on Thursday. Where, uh, the thing I was struggling with as I looked at this was like, even if I'm a great debater of the Christian faith and go up and say I debate with an atheist on a stage, right? And I'm prepared, I've got my notes, right? And I'm ready to say what I need to say. Okay, this argument, he's probably going to ask me this, whatever, whatever. I'm ready for the debate, right? I'm ready to stand up there for an hour and debate this guy and show him why he's wrong, right? Because that's how we do. We debate each other. As a Christian, you don't have to win this debate. That's not even the goal. The goal as a Christian apologist, as you stand up on a stage, is not to win that battle. It's not about that battle. It's about you honoring Christ as holy in your heart. And so if you get up on that stage as the, you know, whatever, Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell, up on a stage debating someone that's an atheist, The most important thing for that person is not to give the best argument, but rather to say what God told you to say. You might have all the arguments together. You might have exactly what you're supposed to say. But if God tells you to say something else, you better honor Christ as holy in your heart and obey him. Because God knows the people he's placed around you. God knows the person you're talking to. God knows your neighbor. God knows your coworker. God knows your spouse. So don't just trust the human argument. Don't just trust the human theory. Rather, honor Christ as holy in your life. Be ready to defend your faith by honoring Christ as holy in your life. It's simple. All of us can defend the faith. It's very simple. You wake up each morning and you give God your day. See, God, this is your day. Whether waters come in my door or not, this is your day. And truthfully, I have done that in the past. I've, we've gone through a storm overnight, rain all night. I've been here. I've seen this video. I've seen this movie before. And in my heart, at night, I've just gone, well, Lord, there might be water on the floor, but it's going to be okay. Because I know it's okay. Because it's always been okay, and it still is okay. But today I didn't do that. Okay, so don't do what I did today. Rather, wake up and know that, yeah, there might be water on your floor. Could happen. Probably going to happen again. Honor Christ as holy. That's how you defend the faith. Each of you are ready to defend the faith. You could go out today and meet someone that's not a Christian, and you could defend Christ as holy today. And they could be saved, not because of the wisdom of your argument, but because of the foolishness of Christ. That the righteous would take on my unrighteousness. And so defend your hope in Jesus by honoring him as holy in your hearts. Second, this, and I'll close with this, appeal to God to save you. Appeal to God to save you. There's two pieces here. First, this applies to your eternal hope. 
Appeal to God for your eternal hope. Do not appeal to your own righteousness. Do not appeal to your own works. Okay, this is the fundamental belief in the gospel. You are not getting into heaven by being a good person. You're getting into heaven because God was good. Because God died in your place. Because he took on your sin in his flesh. So appeal to God as the one who saves. And second, if you can accept this, appeal to God as the one who saves you from the power of sin today. Okay, there, there's an ultimate power of sin, right? Your death and separation from God. That's the ultimate power of sin. And thankfully, God has taken on that penalty for you on the cross. But too often, as Christians, okay, our only hope is in getting saved at the end and not having to go to hell, but rather getting to go to heaven. And too infrequently do we receive the power and authority of Christ Jesus over the entanglement of sin in our life. We attribute it to all manner of things. We attribute it to mental issues. We attribute it to emotional issues. We attribute it to circumstance. We attribute it to just make a laundry list of things that we attribute our suffering unto. So many things. The reason I am this way is because of all these exteriors around me. They're just holding me down. I want to challenge your heart. Jesus defeated them. They're done. Their power is done. You have all authority over every lie that comes to speak into your heart. When it says you're not enough, you are enough in Christ. So do not believe the lies of the flesh that say that somehow something inside this world is more powerful than Christ in me, because it's not true. You have the resurrection of Christ Jesus coursing through your veins. You are saved completely by him. And so if you will receive it, I just challenge your hearts today to not blame what is around you for your problems within you, but rather blame sin and conquer sin in the name of Christ Jesus, not by any other means. Do not hope in what this world can do for you. Hope in what Christ has done for you and let that transform and change and mold your heart to so cling to him in every moment that you need nothing else. I don't need anything other than Christ. I don't. Jesus is enough for me. He's enough. He has been enough for every anxiety that I have ever had. And every time that I allow that to not be true in my heart is not on him. It's been on me. Because I haven't believed that God is enough for my anxious thoughts. That's when Jesus is enough, when I don't allow him to be enough for me. And so I challenge you to maybe take the third view of Jesus preaching to spirits in prison. Think about that. Jesus, when he defeated death on the cross, went back to a time when Angelic figures intermingled with humanity and spread more deception throughout us. And he went back to those spirits and said, didn't happen. Didn't happen. By the cross, that has no power or authority any longer in this world. And be bold enough to stand and trust God to be your only provider in every circumstance. Do you need help along the way? Sure, you do. But the moment your help becomes your hope, you've missed it. Okay? So, so 
yeah, there's, there's things that are helpful. It's good to exercise, you know, it's, it might be good to have medicine in some cases for ailments. Like these are all, these are all fine and good things. But the moment that those helps become your hope, you've missed it. Because Christ is the one that is enough. And if he wants to do it through the means of exercise, means through, uh, through uh, medicine, through the means through surgery, means through all those things, that's fine, that's great. But if your hope is in what this world can provide you, then it is misplaced. Because your only hope is Jesus. He's the only thing that's enough. And so I'm thankful for all of us who've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I praise him every day of my life for what he's done for me. I challenge my heart. Again, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I challenge my heart. I challenge your heart to not just hope in Jesus for an eternal salvation, but hope in him for salvation today. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're facing, Jesus is enough for you right now. And I'll defend that to the day I die. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it challenges us. It encourages us. In spite of whatever we're walking through, God, you are bigger. It is not on intellectual arguments or persuasive speech that we stand. Our hope is built on Christ, our righteousness. Foolishness to man, but the very wisdom of God. And so, Lord, I pray um, that if anything meaningful has been said, it would stick in our hearts. That you, Lord, would encourage us this day to trust you even more. God, we are weak. We're so weak and in need of you. We're poured out, we're crushed, persecuted. But God, in that we're blessed. Because so too were you. And our hope and our strength doesn't come from anything that we're going to receive in this life. Not from a better job, not from a better house, not from a better relationship, not from a better anything. We're not going to receive any hope from what we can receive from this life. Our only hope is in Christ. And so God, I pray you'd help us to believe that. Help us to walk in that. Help us to know that. And Lord, I pray for each of us that this week ahead, there are people that will want to know the reason for the hope that is within us. Are they going to come up and ask us, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? No, not necessarily. But as people see what Christ has done in us, may we be ready to testify to the hope that is within. And so, Lord, help us to honor Christ as holy. And, Lord, I repent for not doing so. And I ask your forgiveness. Lord, you are good. You're my only hope. You're my only desire to honor you, Lord. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.